so you're 20 years old now. You're destitute. You make your way to L.A., which you despise, and from there to San Francisco, which you pretty much love. In the late spring 1962, not long after his 20th birthday, Dennis Kelly moved into a residential club in the heart of San Francisco, a kind of youth hostel where one could live cheaply month to month. This was at the very beginning of the counterculture movement, and the boundaries of conventionality were being pushed on from every direction in San Francisco. Kelly met a man named Marty at a gathering not long after he had moved. The two of them hit it off quickly. He, Marty, was well acquainted with the social scene, the party scene, and even the spiritual scene. There's a Zen temple, Marty's saying, right over on Bush Street in Japantown. The Roshi there is a guy named Suzuki, a real character. It's mostly Japs that come to the center, but word of Roshi is starting to spread. What do you guys do? Kelly asked. Marty laughed, deep belly growl. It's Buddhism. You sit and meditate, man. I know that, asshole, Kelly laughed. I've heard of meditation, for Christ's sake. What kind of meditation? What kind? Shit, man, Marty said. Are you serious? You don't know anything, do you? He looked over at his new friend. Meditation, man. Concentration. You sit down on a cushion and watch your breath. Get in touch with your true essence, man. Have you ever experienced true stillness? A place bigger than your ego? Bigger than everything you know? A place and a bliss that comes to you and sweeps you away with it, man? Marty flicked his cigarette out the window. Kelly looked over again, feeling the hairs on his arms come to standing. Actually, yeah, I have, since I was a kid. No shit, man, Marty said, unruffled. A natural, just my luck. Well, you'd love it then. It's intense, man, and Suzuki is just off the boat from Japan. He's the real deal. He gives incredible talks about the Dharma. A week later, Marty and Kelly entered a modest meditation room full of Japanese men and women. They sat on Zafu's low meditation cushions, towards the back. Kelly was very intrigued to hear what this man, Suzuki Roshi, might say. After a few moments, a short and unassuming man came out from a back room and began a two-hour lecture. It was Suzuki Roshi himself, and he spoke entirely in Japanese. Afterwards, Marty and Kelly got back into Kelly's car. So, what did you think, man? Marty asked. Kelly shot him a look. You giving me the fucking runaround or what, man? Marty laughed. I'm not pulling your leg, Kelly. Are you out of your fucking mind? He spoke in Japanese the entire time. I don't know if you know this or not, Marty, but I don't speak Japanese. Marty, though, just laughed. No, it ain't about the words. It's about the transmission, man. It's about the energy. You know what I'm saying? Kelly, though, just shook his head. No, I don't know what you're saying. When he starts giving lectures in English, feel free to call me. God, what a waste of time. Kelly was skeptical and reluctant to believe in anything without first-hand experience. There would be no leaps of faith in his life, and sitting and listening to Hiroshi speak in Japanese made as little sense as going back to church to listen to a Latin 
mass he couldn't understand. Yet he would find himself back in that center again and again, drawn more to the quiet than to the lectures spoken in a foreign tongue. Even when Suzuki switched to English lectures some years later and the new San Francisco Zen Center opened, Kelly preferred the quiet transmission of the empty meditation hall to the busy sounds of spoken wisdom. So you, your first initiation into Zen, and you're obviously drawn to it enormously. Suzuki was pretty pretty remarkable fellow, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a, like I said, the, he was the real deal. He was the real deal, yeah. And you would continue to show up at the Japanese Zen Center and continue to be drawn to Suzuki and continue to be impressed with him. And so it's probably fair to say that Suzuki Roshi was, you know, one of one of the first real impacts on your life for this path called Zen. Yeah, that's where I began my practice. I actually began my practice, like I said, with the on the Bush Street Temple, which was Japanese uh, community oriented. Right. Then over at Zen Center and Page Street. Right. I sat for Sashin over there and would go stay from time to time. Right. Never officially joined, but uh, that's where my practice began. Practice. Right, right. And it obviously has um, some sort of a strong attraction to you. Yeah. You end up missing Grace and Christine and drive back to Green Bay to visit them. What's San Francisco like? Grace asked. People there are amazing, Grace. He grew more excited and leaned eagerly across the table. People there question everything. I mean everything. It's groovier than you can imagine. Who tells us that we should be married for life or work a single job or make a living the way society says we should? So many people I know there are carving out an entirely new existence. They're into opening their minds. It's like we're breaking free of the chains of authority, Grace. People live in communes where they share all the expenses collectively. Can you imagine such a thing in Green Bay? Like communism? Sure, Kelly said. I mean, who says that communism is bad? Our government, which has a lot of reasons to bullshit us about it. But people in San Francisco are more free. They love more deeply. They're not constrained by ideas, Grace, by fucking concepts they've been taught in school about how things are supposed to be. Do you see? How much more free would we have been if we had been raised by a group of loving people instead of the crazy families and religion, a whole community of people dedicated to truth and love and freedom? For several years in the 60s, San Francisco really was a happening scene, wasn't it? Yeah, it was uh, It was the new age. Yeah. As much as I disliked Los Angeles, it was like uh, day and night, you know, going up to San Francisco and finding this, it's all of this incredible energy and, you know, people talking, people experimenting, and openness. And, and, right. Uh, and there, there, there was, um, it was an extraordinary scene of, creativity of music the music scene was uh particularly extraordinary the philosophical scene the um literary scene city lights bookstore Ferlinghetti, 
uh, it, it really an amazing cultural event was going on there. And this was obviously something that was, was just really just right right to your liking. I was right. <laughs> the next few months of his life involved sex with strangers, drugs of every shape and kind, and parties that stretched out for days on end. The endless narcissism of his life was coming back to eat its own tail, and with only himself to believe in and care about, Kelly's world imploded. Thoughts of Grace and Christine followed him like specters, always in his peripheral vision, but dissolving when he looked directly at them. When he was in Green Bay for two weeks, he felt the weight of the city's collective repression weighing on him in a depressive fog. But San Francisco was the opposite extreme. With no structure, no judgments from his peers, and no rules to follow, all that was left was the absolute terror of his absolute freedom. He locked himself in the room of his residential house with a case of brandy and a slew of pills, uppers, downers, and everything in between. His body was strong and vibrant and filled with tremendous innate vitality. But the depression was crushing. Booze and pills found their way into his system in prodigious amounts. Kelly wasn't even sure if he was trying to kill himself. All he really wanted was to stop thinking about things he could not find a way out of and from feeling a shame and guilt that made him hate who he was. And yet even after days of binging, he always woke up suspended in a purgatory of hangover and withdrawal in fiery depression. He would immediately begin popping pills and drinking again, hoping to break free of whatever had a hold on him. Though through death or through insight, he no longer cared. And this is part of um, the extraordinary aspect of your story. I mean, some, some parts of these aspects, you know, sound, you know, really depressing and really down and, and you know, really kind of um, off. And yet it becomes so clear that it was by living through these experiences and by experiencing all of these, you know, negative emotions and, and negative activities that your own wisdom became deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what's so remarkable about your story is just the ongoing depth that comes from some of these, you know, ongoing problems and negativities. It's really extraordinary, actually, the way that your wisdom continues to grow through all of these experiences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost as if the only way to really experience it, to be able to transcend and include or, and to come to the realization is to go through the process. Right. Right. The structures are there. They're in place. And to reveal them, you have to live them. You can't think about them or talk about them. Right. You have to live through them. At least that was for me. Right. And it, the living of it, you know, having the experience then allowed a shift in, 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 in understanding. And I, I think that, you know, this is one of the most um, compelling stories I've read about somebody able 
to turn these difficult situations and and um, you know negative emotions into what turns out to be really profound wisdom and a profound spiritual understanding. And I think that's what's so really amazing about the story and so uh, extraordinary and to your credit. I mean, it's really, really quite remarkable. He raised a glass of Hennessy to his lips, ready to attempt another escape. And an extraordinary thing happened. As the glass touched his lips, his mind split in two. And some part of him looked out over the wrecked young man who sat, glass of cognac in hand, on the floor of his filthy apartment, naked and shivering. It was the part of him that had emerged when he was just a toddler, that part of him that had no end and no beginning, no boundaries at all, that was not bound to time or place, had no personality, no needs, no desires, nothing to do but simply be. It was like the mind of God looking out on its own creation, seeing and feeling for this small speck of its creation, the small part of Dennis Kelly that didn't believe in such nonsense raised a cacophony of objections, but the noise of his own mind didn't alter or diminish the experience of being one with the mind of God. The realization created a schizophrenic split in him. Part enlightened sage, in part manic drug addict, Kelly began to laugh and cry as his identity rapidly shifted from one perspective to the other. He dressed and left his apartment. His shattered sanity reflected in a wild, too eager stare. He made his way through the city and to Golden Gate Park, where he was welcomed by other madmen. They too heard the voice of God, speaking in a voice too beautiful and too powerful for their sanity to contain. In a week, Kelly became filthy and emaciated and had eyes that bulged from their sockets. To the mile-wide gap in his sanity, the pure, undifferentiated divine seeped through, and Kelly was taken into the very heart of perfection. The realization, though, was too strong for him and had no context in which it would arise. It overwhelmed and repeatedly deconstructed his ego, leaving him unaware of and utterly dissociated from the world. He could have easily died in the park, for he no longer had any need to eat, talk, or pretend to have any socially defined identity at all. Death was nothing but a simple play of perspective. There was nothing to fear and nothing at all to do but just be. Kelly lost any sense of place or any externally defined reality. Day turned to night and back to day again in what was an endless cycle of perfection. Time lost all meaning and relevancy, and he saw God in the smudged and broken faces of his homeless brothers and sisters. One sunny San Francisco day, Kelly was sleeping on his right side, and he woke to someone shaking him. As he rolled onto his back, his face bright red on one side and pale on the other, he heard a voice calling a name that was at once familiar and foreign. Kelly? A cold hand was on his shoulder, shaking him. Kelly, 
There was alarm in the tone. Kelly, wake up. Blinking, he managed to sit. Jesus, the voice said, look at you. What the hell happened? Were you mugged? Kelly's eyes rolled down and he blinked in the fading light of the day. Standing above him, framed by a gorgeous blue sky, was the angelic face of Sylvia Liu, the clothing designer for whom he and Marty worked in exchange for wardrobes. Baby, she said, kneeling, you're filthy. Her nose wrinkled. And you stink. And your skin and bones. How long have you been sleeping outdoors? Kelly said nothing, for he was unsure if Sylvia was real or imagined. And, of course, for him, there was no difference between real and imagined anyway. She shook him hard. Let's go, she commanded. On your feet. Now, you're coming with me. Silently and without protest, he obeyed. She slipped a cold hand around his waist, and with Kelly towering more than a foot above her, his body burning with fever and madness and divinity, guided him back to her apartment. She nurtured him back to health over the next week, bathing and feeding him while filling Kelly's ears with her thoughts that he was bound for something bigger than a rudderless life amid the growing flotsam of a generation adrift. She let him cry when he had to, held space for the darkness, shame and guilt that lashed at him, encouraged the divine insight that was flowing so powerfully and destructively through him. She made love to him and held him, paid for his hair to be cut and styled, gave him custom-made clothes to wear, and over a month slowly brought him back to himself. Kelly smiled. I think the drugs broke something open in me, but they did it by costing me my sanity, at least for a little while. Kelly shook his head. Wow, I mean, that was true madness, Sylvia. I was stark, raving mad. No shit, she said with a laugh. I found you, with your face sunburned on one side and pale and pasty on the other. You looked like some kind of deranged Scottish warrior. Kelly laughed and nodded. But all through that madness, I had access to a peace like I've never known before. He took her hand and felt tears come to his eyes. It was like I was completely insane and completely enlightened at the same time. And right here, right now, I don't want to go down that road again, I can tell you that. But I also don't want to live apart from this feeling I have now where everything is slower and calmer and arises as it should, if that makes sense. And so that was your dilemma, was how to find this state of great perfection and timeless peace and yet not go stark raving insane in Golden Gate Park. Yeah, this gets into the whole, well, my life as a shaman. We didn't. We haven't touched on the LSD, but uh, the truth of using psychotropic or pure psychedelic to deconstruct the ego right. biochemically effectively does that, but it doesn't build structure. It right. doesn't reorganize structure. It disintegrates it completely. Right. So what happens is you have the profound experiences, and my experiences in both the traditional rigid religious sense of meditative contemplation those experiences and everything, and are identical to the experiences 
qualitatively from the pure psychedelic. Right. That's that's why I, I, I returned. I had to I had to return, not just wanted to know. I've always said, well, I really needed to know, but I recognize now in hindsight that I had to go in and slowly and laboriously deconstruct and reconstruct the psyche. Right. Yeah, so this this whole process, this whole mad process of investigation and wildness, uh, was, is, it was just all part of the intersubjective karma of the time. Right. It's like I make the argument there never was, there's no such thing as LSD, there's a need for it. Right. It manifests itself, you know. It's in- and this was part of that period, particularly occurring in San Francisco, but actually all across the country and all across the Western world, for sure, where LSD was fervently believed to be a short and quick and effective means to enlightenment, to waking waking up, to finding the mind of God. And people have a hard time nowadays, I think, realizing just how fervently that belief was held. And, and for good reason. I mean, it was held for very noble and spiritual and and ethical and divine reasons, and I think it's a little hard to understand sometimes today. Yes, and and it was true again, but the the context, the set, the setting, the context, and is really of critical importance in using a, a psychedelic or psychotropic to injunct a particular state. Right, that has to be very carefully constructed. And the the problem is it became it became a party drug because of the sensationalism right. that the the heightened senses. What happens is you you stop defining and translating your sensual realm. Right. It becomes this incredibly addictive uh, game for people. They're not okay. using it as a vehicle to open the door to non dual state or witnessing. They're opening it to really heighten the sensual realm. Right. And, or high subtle realm, which is for me the hallucination patterns. Right. So they don't go to the depth of clarity and come to an you know, ordinary mind, in an ordinary divine mind, right. to get into extraordinary states and confusion. Right. And that, of course, began sort of increasingly and increasingly to occur, as we'll see, and that, that made it more and more problematic. 